I'm going to invite now uh, Scott and Doreen Pupilo forwards who are going to read out of Ezekiel. And then, uh, so they're going to do Ezekiel 38. I'm going to acknowledge again, this is another lengthy uh, reading. Uh, so thank you for your grace and endurance as we go through these uh, long readings. They're going to do 38 and they're going to divide that up however you guys feel so moved. And then me and you, me and Megan, will do 39 together. So that'll hopefully spread it out a little. So hear the word of God. Thank you, guys. Two pages for 39. Okay. I got the coin toss. I got, I, I got all the crazy words. Yeah. Oh, good. Thank you. Chapter 38. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face toward Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws and I will bring you out and all your army horses and horsemen all of them clothed in full armor a great host all of them with buckler and shield wielding swords Persia Cush and Put are with them all of them with shield and helmet Gomer and all his hordes Beth Togarma from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes. Many peoples are with you. Be ready and keep ready, you and all your hosts that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be mustered. In the latter years you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. You will advance, coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates, to seize spoil and carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited and the people who were gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell at the center of the earth. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, Have you come to seize spoil? Have you assembled your hosts to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to seize great spoil? Therefore, son of man, prophesy, 
and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel, like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days I will bring you against my land, that the nations may know me, when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I spoke in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them? But on that day, the day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, My wrath will be roused in my anger. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath I declare, On that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall and every wall shall tumble to the ground. I will summon the sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into the judgment with him, and I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of the many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Well done with those uh, challenging names. All right, chapter 39. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and I will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the people who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned any more. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is coming, and it will be brought about, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and make fires of weapons and burn them, shields and bucklers, bow and arrows, club and spears, and they will make fires of them for seven years so that they will not need to take wood out of the field or cut down any out of the forest, for they will make fires of their weapons. They will seize the spoil of those who despoiled them and plunder those who plundered them, declares the Lord God. 
On that day, I will give Gog a place for burial in Israel, the valley of the travelers east of the sea. It will block the travelers, for there Gog and all his multitude will be buried. It will be called the valley of Haman Gog. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. And all the people of the land will bury them, and it will bring them renown on the day that I show my glory, declares the Lord God. They will set apart men to travel through the land regularly and bury those travelers remaining on the face of the land so as to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make their search. And when these travel through the land and anyone sees a human bone, then he shall set up a sign by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hamon Gog. Hamonah is also the name of the city. Thus shall they cleanse the land. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all beasts of the field. Assemble and come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. A great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of he-goats, of bulls, all of them fat beasts of Bashan, And you shall eat fat till you are filled, and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord, Lord God. And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. And the nation shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanliness and their transgressions and hid my face from them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations. Excuse me. And then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. And I will not hide my face anymore from them. When I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. The grass withers, flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you. Man, there's a lot there. The temptation is to get in again to all the weeds. I'm going to do my best not to do uh, much of that this this morning. And perhaps if there's interesting parts of that you'd like to talk a little bit more about offline, we can we can do that. Um, I remember when I was in grade school, one of the popular things at the time was something called a magic eight ball. Um, so maybe y'all are familiar with that uh, device or toy or whatever we want to call it. Well, Wikipedia has this short blurb about the Magic 8-Ball, because I was trying to figure out a way to describe it for those of you who may not be familiar with it. The Magic 8-Ball is a hollow plastic sphere 
resembling a black and white billiard ball, like an eight ball, if you've ever played pool, right? It's black, it's got the white circle with the eight in it. Its standard size is larger than an ordinary pool ball, but it's been made in different sizes. Inside the ball is a cylindrical reservoir, this fancy language here. It contains a white plastic, 20-sided, regular icosahedron die, okay, which I guess is a 20-sided die, floating in in some liquid. Anyway, without going into more detail, it's a ball with some liquid in it. You shake it up, and then you can ask it a question in theory, and it gives you some kind of of answer. And the messages are read through a window on the ball's uh, bottom side. The idea was that you would ask the ball a question, again, shake it up, and you'd see whatever sort of answer uh, appear. It, it might say something like, it is certain. You know, Am I going to be a millionaire when I get older? It is certain. Uh, or it might say something like, you know, reply hazy, try again, or outlook not so good, right? That's the answer I got to that question, right? You're not going to be a millionaire. We had a lot of fun uh, with it when, when we were kids. But now looking back, I can see that this was a childish, childish form of divination, actually. It was a way of trying to get an answer to a question through some sort of a means outside of God, quite frankly. Um, a, a childish form of fortune telling, we might even call it. Um, so I would encourage you to steer your kids away from that sort of stuff, but... Even from the earliest days, right? This is where I want to go with this. Even from the earliest days, we have this desire to try and figure out what's going to happen in the future, right? What's our future going to look like or what's going to happen here or there? And the magic eight ball is just kind of one example of that itch uh, inside of all of us, I think. As we grow, most of us leave behind our magic eight balls, but we don't leave behind that itch to know about the future, And this is why books on the end of the world or on the last days sell millions and millions and millions of copies. I bet some of you guys out there got a few of those on your shelves, right? That's one of the largest sections in my library, and there actually is the end of days. So Aaron's holding up the Bible. And there are numerous Christian books on this topic, right? And that makes sense because, as Aaron is reminding us, the Bible is full of of uh, talk about the end of days and the last days, right? What we call uh, prophecy, these revelations about future events long before they happen. And it sort of piques our curiosity, right? We want to know. In some Christian circles, there is almost what I would call an obsession with trying to figure these prophecies out in every detail. They read the newspaper eagerly trying to figure out what biblical passages connect with modern events and modern realities and headlines, for some, the Bible has become almost something of like a code book to be cracked and figured out. Sadly, I think this leads to a great many problems in actually understanding the overall message of the Bible. This is a distraction of sorts, I would say, in my opinion. One popular author recounts how he was reading a certain passage of Scripture one day, and suddenly on the TV, appears an announcement, which I wouldn't advise watching the TV while you're reading your Bible, but apparently that's what this person was doing. And that announcement contained the number of the chapter he was reading. So he was in a chapter of some place in the scripture and and some announcement popped up and it had a number in it that was connected to the passage 
he was reading. And the author concluded that the chapter of Scripture, uh, that chapter of Scripture must have to do with this announcement, or that announcement must have to do with this chapter of Scripture. That's a magic eight ball approach to the Bible that doesn't yield much of anything reliable. It just so happens that, you know, this number appeared while I was reading this passage. It must be that there's a connection. I think that borders on divination applied to the Bible. I'd be very careful with that kind of approach to Scripture. So when we come to a passage like this one in Ezekiel, we must be very, very careful. These are the passages that are often bent and twisted. For example, one scholar I was reading on this passage said this, quote, Largely because the Hebrew term Rosh, which means chief, in verse 2, sounds similar to the name Russia, many people today believe that Ezekiel 38 predicts modern Russia's rise in influence. Yet we must reject this interpretation because the nation of Russia did not even exist in Ezekiel's day, and the passage has no meaning then to its original audience. And if it had no meaning to its original audience, that means we could bend it and and shape it like a wax nose is the phrase that he uses to make it mean whatever we want it to mean. So we must be careful with our passage today to not make it a wax nose that becomes whatever we want it to be based on the latest headline that seems to fit, which things with Russia right now would really fit, right? Things that are going on across the world. So we must be careful. That's my simple point there. All of that being said, what do we have before us today in this passage? Certainly there's a lot of stuff going on here, and a lot of it's foreign or strange to us. Lots of names and peoples we're not familiar with. And we're going to very briefly look at some of the details. We're not going to get into the weeds uh, too much. My desire today is to keep, or try and keep anyways, the main thing in view and try and understand what this might perhaps mean for us. Instead of getting lost in all the interesting historical details and rabbit holes, we're going to try and keep our focus on the more important central reality and theme of this section, which I'm going to say for our purposes uh, today and, and trying to make this something that speaks not make it something, but to see what's here for us today. That's a better way to put it. Uh, Here's what the big idea is going to be. Because God is always faithful to his people, we must trust him even in the face of opposition. Okay, so we're going to talk about opposition today. Because God is always faithful to his people, we must trust him even in the face of opposition. This is a recurring theme of late in my circles, um, I think perhaps for many of us, more and more and more we feel cultural opposition. More and more it seems that the heat on the burner is being turned up on those who follow Jesus. It feels more costly to walk with Christ today than it did even just a few years ago, perhaps. But the good news we're going to see today is that God is faithful. Right? We've seen this repeatedly as we've gone through Ezekiel. We cannot judge God's faithfulness to us by our circumstances or by what's happening in the news cycle. Those things are not the barometer of God's faithfulness. God is faithful because that's his character. That's who he is. He is faithful. He's always faithful. 
He always does what he says he will do. He never fails. He keeps his promises. And that is our confidence when enemies come against us, which is what we see in this passage. We see a great horde, multitude, coming up against the people of God. What are we to do? Well, first, let me give you some background as to what is going on here before I attempt to just roll out my my few points kind of at the end. The points will be really brief, kind of near the end. Let's get some background first. The first thing we need to understand is why this is a a, a big deal in the first place. We kind of need to roll back the timeline of history a little bit to get a grip on on what's happening. Uh, Long before Ezekiel's day, God made a set of promises to a man named Abram, who would become Abraham. He told him that he would have a son and that through his son, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Or through Abram and his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He also promised that he would give him a land that his descendants could dwell in. Okay, So he made multiple promises uh, to Abraham. And that land was the land of Canaan, that what would become uh, what would come to be called the land of Israel, named after the people to whom God had given it, the people of Israel. Okay, these are promises that going way back to Genesis fifteen ish, I believe it is. God showed His love to these people in powerful, powerful ways, rescuing them out of slavery, giving them a beautiful law to govern them, teaching them His ways, giving them a temple and and priests and an entire system that taught them who. He was, and most importantly of all, dwelling in their midst through his glorious presence in the tabernacle and in the temple later on. And these are all things that God did for this special people that he had chosen. And he had made promises to this people. Okay. Yet, as we know, this is what we've been reading about in Ezekiel for some time now. Israel continually turned from God and rejected him. Yet God would send prophet after prophet. To warn them and call them back to himself. And eventually God had to bring judgment upon his people. And he cast them into exile. Just as he had warned them he would do. Right? This goes way back. This was not a surprise. It should not have been a surprise to them. Repeatedly God had warned them. You know this is what you need to do. If you want to dwell in the land and have safety. and, And so on and so forth. And for me to remain with you. So he sent them into exile, first the northern portion of Israel, and then later on the southern portion of of Israel called Judah. This brings us to the start of the book of Ezekiel. Okay, so that's where we are when we get to the book of Ezekiel. They're in exile. They're under God's judgment and discipline. And what we find looming at the start of the book of Ezekiel is the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. This is sort of the final death blow to his people. He's urging them leading them, turn to me and live, repent of your sins, I will forgive you, I will show you, show you grace, and they just continually won't do it. And so the final sort of death blow is that the Lord is going to depart from the temple, his glory is no longer going to dwell there, and the temple will be destroyed, and Jerusalem destroyed along with it. Eventually, as we go through, we find that God's glory, of course, has left the temple, And shortly thereafter, the city and the temple are destroyed. These are the messages that Ezekiel was called to give to these people in exile in Babylon. Okay, 
We talked about that, how dreadfully difficult this would be. This was not a fun ministry that Ezekiel was given. This was a ministry of judgment. Very, very difficult thing. So Jerusalem's destroyed as we, I think it's chapter 30, 33 maybe, early part of uh, the 30s in Ezekiel, where uh, finally um, the temple's destroyed, Jerusalem's destroyed. Many of the inhabitants are killed and flee. Uh, Many flee and some others are taken off into exile where Ezekiel um, already is. The Jewish people, think about this, they have no home. They have no country anymore. Many of them are dead. They're slaves. Their temple is in ruins. They've lost everything. This is where we are when we come to chapter 34, 35 in the book of Ezekiel. And the looming question is for anyone who has been following the biblical story, if you're familiar with the story up to this point, is how can this be? These are God's people. God has made promises to this unique, special people. And here they are. None of those promises seem to be coming to pass. He told them they would dwell in the land. He would be their God and they would be his people. Yet they're not in the land. Their land is destroyed. It lies in ruins. People are scattered. Many of them are dead. Many are scattered throughout the nations. So as we arrived at chapters 33 and 34 a few weeks ago, it would appear as though all is lost and that God himself has even proven unfaithful to his promises. So how can you and I? This is where it gets relevant for us. There's a lot to say about Israel and what's happening to them and going to happen to them. But a very pertinent question for you and me is how can you and I trust this God or believe this book or this story If God is not faithful to his promises, why should we put our trust in him? If he's failed his original covenant people, the people of Israel. This is a serious question and our chapters today perhaps will give us, I hope, a little insight into some of these questions. But what we've begun to see in the previous chapters, 34 to 37 already is that the tone of the book is changing. And I've emphasized this the last uh, few times, the last few weeks together. Right, those first 32, 33 chapters, that's pretty tough stuff, right? Lots of words of judgment and discipline. But when we get to 34 and on into 37, which we looked at 37 last week, the tone is changing. And the season, we're realizing that the season of judgment will not last forever. And we're beginning to hear words of reassurance and comfort. Those were present. They were mingled in, sprinkled in, in the previous chapters. But now the whole tone, it's reversed. We're hearing much less words of condemnation and judgment and much more about uh, a a good future, a, a, a blessed future and comfort, words of comfort to God's people. God is going to bring his people back into the land. We've been hearing this. God is going to help them rebuild. We've been seeing this in these chapters 34 to 37. He's going to fill them with his spirit and revive them. And they will again be an obedient people and God will dwell with them once again. Here are the final words of chapter 37 just before our passage today. Quote, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them and I will set them in their land There's that land again. 
and multiply them, right? Many offspring, big people. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst for evermore. God's going to be their God. He's going to be with them again, right? This sounds a lot like what he was saying to Abraham. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So the tone is really changing as we come into 38 and 39 now. We know from history that Israel would go back into the land and rebuild the temple and reinstitute the things that had been destroyed before, the sacrifices and so on. That happened, right? I mean, when Jesus is on the earth, there's a temple. The people are back in the land, right? But the words of Ezekiel 34 to 37, hear me clearly, are not referring to that time period. First of all, the second temple was also destroyed later on by the Romans. And second of all, the language from these chapters is new covenant language. For instance, Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 says this, listen, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That sounds a lot like stuff we read in the New Testament, doesn't it? Right? Jesus saying you must be born again. Must be born of water and the spirit. You can't even see the kingdom unless you're born again. That's new covenant language. What does that mean? Some of you are like, maybe... What are you talking about, Pastor? Well, what it means is that these visions are referring to a time after the coming of Christ, right? After Bethlehem, sometime well after that. These promises are promises that were fulfilled in and through the work of Jesus, okay? By the time we get to chapter 38, where we are today, Israel is already resettled in the land. Okay, notice that. This is just plain there in the, in the, the wording of the passage. Verse 8 depicts Israel as a people living peacefully. The land that was once ruined has been rebuilt and they're dwelling securely. And once again, the nations rise up against God's people. This mysterious Gog of the land of Magog. We see them come into view right at the start of our chapter in verse 2. Of course, there's a lot of debate about which nation or leader or ruler this is referring to, the Gog of Magog. But we're not given much detail here, and I think that is intentional. So I'm not going to take my stab at, at those, those things. <clears throat> and I think that's one of those obsessions, perhaps, that I want to gently push back on. For folks that are really into all of, of that stuff. We're not given much detail here. So maybe that's very. Well not maybe. It's intentional. Okay. So when we come to the New Testament. We see Gog and Magog mentioned in that passage. That we had read earlier in the service. Out of Revelation 20. Gog and Magog are simply the names of the nations. Led by Satan to attack Jerusalem at the end of the infamous thousand years mentioned there in Revelation 20. 
If this Gog and Magog are the same ones Ezekiel speak of here, then what we have here in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is a vision of a time just before, right on the very cusp of eternity. Ezekiel's vision here is one of the times right before the end of this present age. Okay? And there are some different alternate interpretations of things. I'm giving you my reading of, of this. <clears throat> this interpretation makes actually really good sense given the content of chapters 40 through 48. Take a moment when you get home. If you have half an hour, read through 40 to 48. And those chapters at least appear to be a depiction of the coming age, not the present age. That is the eternal state, the time after history. This age is complete. But again, that's a sermon for another day. We'll get into 40 through 48 at some point. What is right before us now is a great and mighty enemy rising up against God's people once again near the end of time. And God, of course, is going to rise up against them. But don't you just want to be done with the opposition. I had that thought when I read this. It was like over and over and over again as you read through the Bible. There's so much opposition to God's people. It rises and it falls over and over. Finally, they're back in the land. They're settled. They're dwelling peacefully. And here again comes a great enemy. Aren't you ready to dwell in peace and for all the division to end? I sure am. Well, that day is coming and we welcome it. Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But until the Lord comes, we can expect troubles. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul said, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Will be. Not might be, will be. You will have troubles if you seek to live for Jesus. In short, opposition is a part of part and parcel of the Christian life. And that opposition will come for all kinds of reasons. As we've already seen in Ezekiel, sometimes it comes because of our own foolishness. Right? And that's point number one, by the way. My points are going to be, again, really brief this morning. Remember before I say point number one over again. Remember the big idea. Because God is always faithful to His people, we must trust Him even in the face of opposition. So this word... And its to its original audience was intended to encourage uh, the folks in exile, right? To encourage you. You're going to be back in the land. Things are going to go good. There's going to be opposition. God's going to fight for you. Okay, that was to be an encouragement to them. There will be opposition. But God is faithful. He's always faithful. Even when we're facing opposition. Alright, so point number one. Even in the face of opposition brought on by our own sin. Okay? Quite frankly, we face opposition sometimes because we're dummies, right? We do something dumb and then upset things. This point we've already seen in Ezekiel, right? I'm not going to elaborate at great length here. God's people were disobedient for a long time. And it ended up leading them into a real mess. God raised up opposition to discipline and judge and confront Israel because of their own sins, right? In other words... If you're cutting people off in traffic all the time and they pull up beside you and lay on their horn and maybe give you some unfriendly gestures, don't be surprised, right? 
That happens when you are rowdy behind the wheel. Our sin creates problems in our lives and brings about destruction. But for the believer, this is good news, for the believer, we have the confidence that God is even working in that for our good. Right? There's something in it for us that's good, even when it's a result of our own foolishness. That's how big our God is. You can't get yourself into a situation that God doesn't have his hands on. This is what we've seen over the course of the past several months in the book of Ezekiel. So again, I'm not going to go on about that point. But we can trust the Lord even in the face of opposition brought on by our own failures and sins. Here again we see in this book, God working it out for good. He has a plan in the mess. He's going to bring them back into the land and do something great with them. That's point number one. Point number two. We must trust the Lord even in the face of opposition brought on by our light. Okay, so the first one is by our sins. But sometimes opposition will come our way because of our light, because we're doing right. Here again, we find Israel in the crosshairs of warmongering nations. Again, the details of who the nations are and all that stuff, we're going to leave that aside. The point is, as a mighty horde rises against the people of God here, as we're approaching the end of the age, and Israel is in the crosshairs. But there's a major difference in this instance. You see, in Ezekiel, Babylon came against Judah, right, in those first 32, 33 chapters, because of their unfaithfulness and disobedience, right? They were being disciplined, chastised, judged for what they had done. They were taken into exile because they were not following in God's paths. But here we actually have a spiritually renewed people, a spiritually restored people dwelling securely, safely in the land that God has promised to them. And then these attacks arise. In other words, this attack from Gog and Magog is not because Israel has been disobedient in this case. They are not being disciplined or judged. In fact, one might argue again the opposite. It's precisely because they are God's people that the nations, at least it appears all the nations, arise against them. Because they're God's people, because they're doing right and living in peace and being faithful to the Lord, that this opposition arises. Over and over, the scriptures speak to to us about this very thing. First Peter four. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Right. Don't be surprised. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me first right it hated me before you sometimes i think we believe this is me speaking for myself here perhaps this resonates with some of you sometimes i think we believe that if we were more like jesus then everyone would like us we'd be really loved if we were more like jesus even though we wear crosses around our necks and have a cross at the front of the sanctuary and we speak of the cross, we forget that our master was one who died on that cross. And Jesus didn't die because he was the nicest guy in town and everybody liked him. Jesus certainly loved people like no other. But that love was not the phony, fake love we talk about today. A love devoid of truth and grit. Our our cultural love has no grit to it today. It's a, you do whatever you want, and I'll love you no matter what. That, or I'll affirm you no matter what. That's not love. 
Jesus' love was a love in the truth. It was a love that had the courage to speak what was right and do what was right. In Luke 21, Jesus says these words. And we could debate about what time period this is speaking of and all those details. But just don't focus on that. Focus on the words themselves here in Luke 21. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and signs in the heavens. But before all of this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate before how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will even put to death. This is what being a person who lives in the light often gets in this world. This is happening right now across the the nations. People are still being killed for their faith today in places like India and many others. Your troubles are not always a result of your sins. Sometimes it's because you're walking in the truth. You're doing what is right and good before God. You're in the light. And that certainly is the case for followers of Jesus. That's the second point this morning. We must trust the Lord even in the face of opposition brought on by our light. And I think that's what we're seeing here in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Finally, let's look at our final point this morning. Point number three, we must trust the Lord even in the face of opposition brought on by God himself. Brought on by God himself. If you've been paying attention, maybe this is, I mean, we've drawn attention to this as we've gone throughout, but maybe it's, you know, pebble in your shoe, or it's just a little thought that's, that's still there and you're wondering what that's all about. As we've gone through the book of Ezekiel, one of the running themes is God's controlling power over all things, if you've noticed this. God is the one raising up nations. God is the one bringing them down. To us, this seems mysterious, but God is not like us. Why are we surprised by that? God often accomplishes his work through means that to us mere men, mere mortals, seem bizarre. Why, God? What what is that all about? We're not God, right? (laughs) Notice in our passage today in verse 4 that God says to Gog and Magog, And other nations that he's going to bring them out. I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws. Almost this image of like, they didn't want to go almost is the image. And he's going to drag them out to do this thing that he wants them to do. And all of your army and your horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host. All of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords. God is stirring a great army that will rise against his own people. And while this may seem bizarre, God's intention and his purpose is always good and right. Right? We can't do, we can't put God in the dock and demand he explain himself. He's always right. He's God. Verse 16 says, you will come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud covering the land. 
And in the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now, verse 23 of chapter 38. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know I am the Lord. Is this not what God did in the days of Pharaoh in Egypt? He looks at Pharaoh and says, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power through you. Now we see it with Gog and Magog. In other words, God is going to prove himself faithful. He's going to prove he's God and show all the world his power and holiness. Whatever your interpretation about this very great battle here in Ezekiel 38 and 39, and there are different interpretations, I want to focus on the fact that God will prove himself faithful to his people. And for me, as I understand it, that means... Both his covenant people, the people of Israel, that ethnic group that he's chosen and made promises to. I think those promises are still in play today. But those promises are also yes and amen to us in Jesus. We are Israelites grafted in through faith in Christ. So there's something here for us as well. But there is I don't want to brush aside this fact that they were promised a land and to be a blessing to the nations and that God would dwell amongst them and all of these things that we see here. And one of the ways that God is going to prove himself faithful to his people, again, to both his covenant people, ethnic Israel, and to new covenant people, the church, one of the ways he's going to do that will be through this final great and glorious victory over all evil. God had dealt the death blow to sin and Satan on the cross at Calvary. And for all of us who trust in Jesus, our sins do not have the last word. And that will actually be true for Israel as well. New Testament Israel will trust in Christ, not the old systems in the old ways. They're a part of the church too. Okay, so there's a multi-layered thing going on here. But God has dealt the death blow to sin through the cross. If you have not trusted in Christ, do so today. He is the only way to God. But there is another victory to be yet had. And that is what we're seeing here in Ezekiel 38 and 39. God will stir up a great trial, not for harm, but for good. And he will stir it up so that he can finally, conclusively put an end to it. And so that he can stand with his people. Just as God stirred up the crucifixion of his own son, which there's mystery there, right? This was in the mind of God. God did this so that you and I could be forgiven. So here, God will stir up the nations so that once and for all, evil can be put down. The end of time will come a great battle and the people of God will face intense opposition from all sides. But just when it appears, there is no hope and no way out. God will mightily deliver and everyone will know he is the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob. This is right at the end of our passage and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all their treachery. They have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. That's the eternal state, people. That's 
life after this present age. We will dwell securely with our God. And so will the people of Israel. And so we will see once again the foundation of our hope. Our God is faithful. He is victory. He is good. He's mighty to save. That's our hope whenever we're facing opposition. So as you face opposition today in your workplace, in your home, in your neighborhood, on social media perhaps for some folks in the room, (laughs) or wherever, remember these things. Amen. Now let's pray as Tim comes forward to lead us in a final song. God, we thank you. I know that was uh, a lot and that was lengthy and there's a lot of meat there to chew on. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, come and apply these things to our hearts. Help us to understand them. There's so much more here. And Lord, I pray that uh, you'd make it clear, the words I've spoken. I know there's a lot of nuance and things that I couldn't even get to, but I pray you'd help make sense of it, Lord. And we, and we take hope in the fact that you have saved us from our sins, and one day you will completely put down all evil In that great day when all uh, the devil and his armies are cast into the lake of fire and we dwell with you securely for all eternity. In Jesus' name, we look forward to that day. Amen.